We are back. Uh, Sans lead-in music this time. That lead-in music was so horrible last time. I think I had, man, I had nightmares about it. It was horrible. Listen, if any of our listeners at all write original music, please send it in. We'll plug your band. We'll say anything you want. Just please save us from that other intro music. We never want to have to ever hear that ever again. But everyone, welcome back. Thank you for finding us again. Uh, we can't thank you enough for coming back to the My Music, My Concert, My Life podcast. We're the music blog that changes lives one band at a time. My name is Fran Chismar, the founder of WWW, My Music, My Concert, My Life. And as always, I will be your host. And we are so very grateful for all the people that listened to the first podcast. Uh, we got such positive feedback from the first episode. You know, when you do something like this, you never know how it's going to be received. We're hoping people would listen. People actually listen, people from all over the world. And the feedback was so good, I was actually a little disappointed. I was actually hoping for some negative feedback uh, so I could put it to music kind of like Mike Watt in the Minutemen, you know, nothing like uh, playing with some bad feedback. But today we're going to uh, – we have a special guest with us. We're going to review some albums. Uh, we're going to play a new game. Uh, but first, I'm really excited about today's episode because of the special guest. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dawn White from You and Me Incorporated. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hi, this is Don. How are you? <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, My pleasure. Dawn, uh, Dawn currently owns her own artist management company uh, and has also spent many years on the road as a tour manager. When did you start as a tour manager? Well, so my very first traveling music industry-related gig was uh, – for King Britt, who is a Philadelphia legendary house music producer. And I got my start working with him because he was following a column I was writing for the Philadelphia Weekly where I was talking a lot about the way that I felt that race influenced the music scene in Philadelphia. Okay. And he reached out to me. I was waiting tables at the time and bartending and freelance writing on the side. And he reached out to me and said, I'm launching a new production company. I would love if you would come and help me run my new production company. So I had zero experience doing anything like that. <laughs> and I said, of was course. That surreal? Was that surreal to you at the time, to be approached like that? It was totally surreal. And, you know, I, I honestly had no idea what I was doing, but I've since learned that that's how the entire music industry functions. It's <laughs> make it up as you go along. And um, and so, yeah, he, I mean, literally before then, the only places I had been with my parents was Canada and Mexico and places you could walk across the border. So now, what what year was this that, that this happened? Two with King Brett. 2000. 2000. So it's yeah. been a while. It's, it's, it was it's been a while. And, and it's, and, and I agree with you, even, you know, I'm at a different perspective, even with the blog, like, when I first started working with publicists, like no one really tells you how to do it. Like no one wants, you know, you, you find a couple of people that help you a little bit, but they're just giving you like bits and pieces and you just kind of have to like figure it out on your own and you just have to see what you can get away with and what, <laughs> what you can't. But I found myself saying I could do stuff and then figuring out how to do it. It's so definitely I would imagine fake it till you make it. And the reason nobody wants to tell you is because they're so busy faking it themselves, they don't want you to come along and fake it better than them. <laughs> which is true, which is true. So it's – now, 
so this has been 17 years for you now. And, and I would assume that between – and you've come a long way since then, but since then and now, the industry has probably changed threefold, I, I would imagine. Would you say that's the case? Oh, my God. Well, for sure, just in terms of technolo- you know, technologically and how we digest music um, is nothing like when you and I were kids. I remember when I got my first CD player in seventh grade, and the, I remember distinctly it was Christmas, and the first CDs I got were George Michael's Faith and Squeeze Singles 45s and Under. And... <laughs> being mesmerized with this technology and these boxes that they, these beautiful boxes that they came in that you would cut out and I would hang them on my walls in my bedroom and and that was a huge leap from the cassette tape that I used to have in the in the bedroom and waiting for you know radio to play my favorite song so that I could hurry up and jam record and miss the first three notes of the song but then so I could hear that song over and over and over again, and now, now I, you know, it's so different. It, it really is. It just, just for the record, I got my first CD player my senior year. Now, I'm a few years older than you. Um, my first CD was Sting's Nothing Like the Sun, ah. and I remember, like, that was, like, the first CD I got, but I couldn't afford any other CDs, so I listened to that CD start to finish <laughs> a million times. <laughs> Until I finally, I think I actually traded in vinyl albums to to get enough money for my second CD. So, which was U2's Unforgettable Fire. Wow. So, my first concert was U2. Memory. My first really? concert was that U2. That was your first one? Uh-huh. JFK Stadium, uh, Joshua Tree Tour. Um, Bono had a broken arm. And so Bruce Springsteen came out and played guitar. I was... 12 years old. No. Uh-huh. I was 12 years old, and I will never forget the people in front of me were smoking pot. It's the first time I'd ever smelled it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. That's an awesome just... first concert. That's an was, awesome was, first yeah. concert. My, then my we... first concert, I, I'm being digression-friendly right now, as Janet would say, but my <laughs> first concert was Billy Joel um, from – uh, the Innocent Man tour at the Spectrum, and my oldest sister took me, and she only took me because my other sister was sick. So they just didn't want the ticket to go to waste because I was in, like, eighth grade, and oh. our seats were where they put the soundboard, so we got moved up to, like, the fifth row. And it That's was great unbelievable. Oh, That's that a was a fantastic first. It's not Bruce Springsteen filling in. You know, for you too, but it's it's not bad. Well, there's <laughs> That's a, a pretty Joel, awesome concert. There's a Billy Joel debate that goes on in my house because my husband is English and he doesn't really understand the whole Billy Joel thing. And originally, when we first got together, he was like, "This guy's a twat. I don't want to hear this shit in my house." <laughs> and then, you know, I started to play him things that maybe he didn't necessarily process the first time or. It, you know, and he was like, "Oh wait, this is Billy Joel. This this song's actually pretty good." Like, there's a yeah, lot of Billy Joel that's cheesy that was really radio friendly. I think you, if you get past some of that, I mean, he's a brilliant storyteller. Like, like a lot of 
that 70s era, like Bruce Springsteen, stuff like that, I think they all fit into that same category. And they all have music that I'm sure, you know, a lot of people don't like. But there's such a large catalog of really good stuff if you, you know, if you delve yeah. into it a little bit. I think England, so, got that, that, that. England got Uptown Girl. They didn't They didn't get <laughs> 70s, you know, Didn't get, like, Summer Island Falls. <laughs> Coke snorting Billy Joel, you know. <laughs> Which is a good Billy Joel. That's a good Billy Joel. That's a great Billy Joel. Christy Brinkley. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So to to go back. All right. You were recently interviewed by the Guardian about Cameron Crowe's short-lived TV show, Roadies. Ah, yes. You had said said that (laughs) often life on the road is glamorized. Now, I know my first time backstage was not anywhere close to what I expected. Because, you know, growing up, you hear stories about, Def Leppard having girls wait under the stage and David Lee Roth and all these crazy stories. But that's not yeah. really the case. I think maybe at one point that was the case for, for some bands. But to that, like, once you got on the road, I, I guess for the most part, would you say that's not the case? Well, being on the road is very much like Groundhog Day, peppered in with a few <laughs> dynamic you know, cringeworthy, dramatic incidents that <laughs> I, I think are the ones that get written about in books, you know. Like in the Motley Crue book, the, did you read The Dirt? Um, I, I did not read that one. So they, they I forget, it's every chapter is a different band member, and they rotate telling their stories, and I forget who it is, but maybe it's Tommy Lee, I forget, but they basically talk about this, woman who was so desperate to party with the band after the show that they told her that if she squatted back, like she had to wait in the dressing room, basically squatting with a wine, with a neck of a wine bottle in her, <laughs> in her hulu. And that when they came back, if she was still there, she could party with the band after the show. Now, okay. <laughs> Maybe those things happen. Or maybe they just did so many drugs that they think those things happened. Now, but you also said in that interview what, what happens on the road stays on the road because it's important to stay employed. And if you go leaking right. secrets, you can't. You're, you're going to find yourself unemployed. I, so mean, there I, are, I would imagine as an yeah. outsider that some of those things do happen and a lot of them don't happen or, or don't happen anymore. That would be my, my guess. Uh, Shit definitely goes down, but there is not a single one of those stories that I am able to tell right now, and and that, and therein lies the problem why roadies didn't fly. I mean, gotcha. you can't tell the best stories because the, they're, so, you know, they're so personal, and and even like you know we we have a running joke in my house. Um, this one's for the script. And of things that have happened to us, you know, but we we can't sell those stories yet. So it's either going to be when we're like, you know, we lose all our clients and we're so destitute and now we have to pay for our kids literally to like put shoes on his feet that we're going to be like, fuck it, we're telling all these stories. Screw all you people. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be in that position. <laughs> but just for the record, your husband also is in artist management. He was actually in a band at one point when he was younger also. He was, so he experienced he both sides. He did, so. although the majority of his stories go something like, I drank so much and did so much blow, I had a panic attack and had to spend the night rocking myself to sleep. 
So he <laughs> like the entirety. Oh, he and although he did tell me he took so much ecstasy once that he ended up making out with his male bandmate. <laughs> now he was younger though, also, right? Oh, they were like eighteen and toured all over the world. Yeah, okay. Opening for Jarvis Cocker and yeah, but they were also so there's, like there's a little bit of slack given for that age being thrust into that situation. Mm-hmm. So high, you don't even know who you're making out with anymore. <laughs> Listen, yeah. we were 18 once. Were you ever That's in that true. position when you were 18? Because I can, I, I don't want to know who I made out with. There, I'm saying okay. it. If I don't yeah. remember, I'm better off not knowing. I don't think I need to know. There are for sure some <laughs> forgettables in there. But so as the, going back to the road, I mean, you know, when I started out, so the thing with King Brit was he was just a DJ, he was a producer. So it was with him, it was just very glamorous. It was him and me, and I would go along, and we would stay in these beautiful hotels, and we would go to these amazing cities that I had never visited before, London and Tokyo and Paris, and it was all very exciting. And then I came back to Philadelphia, and I started managing an amazing recording studio uh, called The Studio, which is... Okay. Owned by uh, Larry Gold. He's a, a he's a top notch string composer arranger. He plays with you know McFadden and Whitehead on "Ain't No Stopping Us Now," and awesome. he was playing cello. Which to me is about as Philly as you can get, right yeah, there. Yeah, he is that, a Philly that legend. Statement. So he was part of that whole world of Gamble and Huff and the Sound of Philadelphia, and then he took his money and he opened a recording studio on uh, Spring Garden, a seventh and okay. Spring Garden. And he went on then to become a string composer arranger and he did the arrangements for every R. Kelly hit you've ever heard. He did Justin Timberlake's Cry Me a River. Um, awesome. You know, and then within his compound, he had the Roots working there. They had set up their own camp. Uh, they had their own studio in one side of the building and then the rest of it was rooms that he rented out and so during this time period in the late 90s early 2000s everybody was coming to work there I mean it was just hit after hit was coming out of that studio because you could come there go into the room start to work in the lobby where all of these musicians or or sorry in the in like the yeah I guess the lobby area there's a pool table and there is PlayStation NBA whatever that basketball game was. And then the whole place oh, yeah. was just, it was like, you know, it was like an Amsterdam coffee house in there. So <laughs> Jayla would be in the room cutting a song and they would be like, we need a bass player. And they would just walk out of the studio and be like, who can lay, who can come in and play bass? And there'd be like three bass players just sitting there getting stoned and playing video games that would walk into the room and then lay down a bass line that would then be a number one hit. And then which, Larry which would, kind of makes me think of what would happen at like stacks, you know, like that's yes, very that's much. the like, scene I'm kind of imagining. Uh huh. Or uh, stacks, um, the Hendrix Studio in New York, Electric Lady was very similar. Yeah. Um, and so then Larry was right there, who owned the studio, who could compose and arrange the strings. So it was just okay. you know, so I was working there. I became the studio manager, and we were all living large. Our Christmas party was literally like every kind of amazing weed you could imagine. <laughs> Bottles of Cristal. There was a stripper pole that went up. Like, it, you know, 
and then the uh, and then this thing happened that revolutionized uh, revolutionized how we now listen to music, and everything started to go digital. And okay, pe- artists started taking their advance money and opening their own digital home studios. And so, what was once this you know state of the art, world class destination recording studio, it that it was it, the analog became the dinosaur. Do you, do you think that the music has suffered due to the lack of because that the studio like that definitely is providing a certain culture uh, with collaboration and things like that. Do you think it suffers mm-hmm. a little bit by not having all those great people in one place together, never knowing what's going to happen, or do you think? I guess with digital, you can be yeah. in different parts of the world now and 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 still get that. You can, but then you you know you're you're bouncing parts and you're sending stems and you're missing that energy of somebody showing up at the studio in the middle of the night and saying, "Yo, I was just at the strip club and this girl was dancing for me and she told me she could rap and I was like, yeah." kick a verse for me and she starts rapping and they bring her into the studio and it's Eve. And so wow. that doesn't happen anymore. I don't think. No, I mean, no. And that's, that's an incredible story that just to think that know, that yeah. happened and now things like that for it to, I guess it could still happen, but the chances of it happening are, are a lot slimmer. And that there now, was a recording studio that was open 24 hours a day where there were people in there hanging out all hours of the day, and they were working, and, you know, I just don't think that exists anymore. And in Philly, too. Like, I think a lot of people would think of a scene like that and think L.A. and New York right off the bat. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and absolutely. that was happening in Philly. Now, and that, yeah. at that point, at that point, would you say, as a woman in the industry, was it more of a man's world at that point? Was it difficult being a woman at that point in the industry? Well, all of the studio managers were were all female, but the guy that really ran the studio, who was the everything man of that studio, he... <laughs> Uh, his name's Montez. He he he's a phenomenal person. So, um, okay. I mean, being a woman, okay, being a woman in the music industry, <laughs> being a woman in any industry is tricky. I think the only yeah. industries that you could say are not are not predominantly male are probably uh, the teaching industry and the nursing industry, and I'd be hard pressed to think of very many others that aren't predominantly male. I mean, no, that's even, true. The, even the culinary world, all of the chefs are famous, although you find that, generally speaking, people think the woman is the cook, right? So, yeah, yeah. No, um, I can't think of any other. I would have said nursing. I can't think of any other industry I would think of that that is female, predominantly female. So. Being a woman in the music industry is extremely complex. I am probably on the fringes. I'm probably on the fringe of opinion on how I feel about women in the music industry. 
But when you start, say when you started tour managing, were there many women that did that? No, and before I was a tour manager, I was the band's assistant. So once Larry's studio started to go under because of the digital shift, I was offered a job working with The Roots, and I went on tour with The Roots as an assistant. Um, So, you know, being an assistant on a tour is not glamorous, and that's why that show, Roadies, <laughs> really just didn't work for me because what I did as the assistant essentially was take lunch orders. I, I went back to being a waitress. So I took okay. lunch orders, and I, um, you know, tidied up the dressing room, and I sold T-shirts and the least glamorous things you could imagine. However, <laughs> the glamorous side was I was then getting paid to travel all over the world with an elite band and stay in beautiful hotels and, you know, have an experience unparalleled. I I, I would imagine that with any any place else that you would work that your experience is going to be based on your employers. So, like, I would imagine that if your employers are having a groupie squat over a bottle. (laughs) Right. That your experience with them may be different than, say, the roots. Well, you know, there's there's no HR. So yeah. whether it's Motley Crue or the roots or even, like, some pussy-ass singer like Sam Smith, <laughs> there's still no HR. There's no one to go complain to and say, I feel that I'm being abused or taken advantage of and, and then if you are someone who wants to complain, you're gone. And there's so many other people waiting to have your job that want to travel around the world for free. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess the only HR, I guess, would it be, especially with so many artists having their own labels at this point, I guess, I, could you consider if they were with a big major label, even HR? If you were working for the label or for the booking agency, if you're working at one of the elite agencies, CAA or, you know, William Morris, or, you know, you're working at one of the big management firms, then there's definitely HR. And there's obviously a huge uh, shift now, a kind of coming out of, um, you know, of people going down. I mean, uh, I'm 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 thinking of the whole Kesha case right now uh, where she uh, was said that she was basically raped and didn't want to work with with a certain producer and she couldn't or she was having trouble getting out of it (laughs) like that just seems surreal to me in any industry yeah yeah (laughs) but I mean L.A. Reid just went down and he's you know one of the dinosaurs, I guess, or one of the most respected uh, music executives of our lifetime. He's the chairman of Epic Records, you know. He went down recently, and so nobody's safe anymore in that regard. Which which is a good thing. I mean, realistically, everyone should have the opportunity to have a safe work environment. Um, But it kind of sounds like for the longest time, like they, like the artists were the talent, and it was like the Wild West. It's like what they wanted. 
That sounds very politically correct. At least that's my perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm an outsider. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to say it in a way that's, you know, that's the way it seems to me. I don't know if that's the way it is, but it just seemed like at at some point, let's say in the 70s, you know, like whatever, Mm -hmm. Van Halen won it, Van Halen got because they were making Mm -hmm. the record companies large amount of money. I I just don't know Mm -hmm. that that money's still there. So I'd imagine things would change over the years. Yeah, you know, I will say this from being a female on the road is that um, women are ruthless. And so not from the industry perspective, but from the fan, from the groupie perspective, you know, mm-hmm. women yeah. women are ruthless and they're aware of what they're doing. And so this, this whole, this is such a date, I don't know who's going to hear this, but this whole kind of, I'm the victim. Yeah. I really don't, I really, you know, it's like the girl who cries wolf. So there's so many girls out there crying wolf that for the women who are really being victimized, they get dismissed. And it's a shame because there are true victims. But from what I've witnessed with my own eyes, there, there are just a lot of girls who will do whatever it takes to get backstage. You know, there, there was a whole kind. There's been a period of younger when I was younger, females saying to me, "How do I get to do what you do? How do I get to do what you do?" And my advice was always, "Don't fuck anybody in the band. Don't fuck anybody. Like, <laughs> you know, whatever you do, don't yeah. put it out. Like, just be serious about the job." And and I've, I've said this advice to friends who then went on and, like, slept with the guys in the bands I was working for. And then they were around for a month, and then they were gone, and they didn't leave with jobs. Because yeah, you know, yeah, and, and that's tough. Every, everyone has a different perspective of what they want to do and what needs to get done. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely see that happening. I mean, but from your standpoint, you gave them good, solid, sound advice. They just chose not to. <laughs> they chose to do what they want. Which, so, you know, you hate to say you, you kind of get what you deserve. Uh, I guess that's not the politically correct way to say it. But if, you know, there were proper ways to go about getting into the industry if you wanted to. You just chose to ignore it. Right. <laughs> and then I also think that you have to be prepared for a certain amount of uh base level conversation of women referred to as ways you may not agree with necessarily, uh, some flirtation, you know, it's, it's, it's an industry that doesn't happen from nine to five in, in a boardroom. It's, yeah. you know, there, and I'm sure you have to pay your dues. Like you have to start from the ground and, and work your way up to get the respect to, to keep yeah. moving up. On my first tour managing job, I used to do the band's laundry. <laughs> Which and is something I'm, you don't think about with, with bands on the road. You just think it magically gets done. Like you don't think right. about who does it or how it happens. So now I'm actually the band's tour manager, which is like, oh, everybody thinks, oh, my God, you know, so glamorous. I was doing the band's laundry, and, and also I would have to stand and force them to take showers. <laughs> Are you also, like, I guess back in the day, smaller places, smaller bands, like, 
you responsible for for them getting paid yes. from a venue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would imagine that's not, I've heard stories about that. I can't imagine that that is an easy task either. Uh, I once climbed a fence in Miami because the promoter was hiding in a trailer because he didn't have the money <laughs> to pay the band. And so I climbed the fence and then was banging on the trailer door. I was like, you need to fucking pay me. And when he finally let me in, he actually said to me, you know what, you're a real bitch. And I said, you know what, that's fine because I'm not here to be your friend. So give me my money so I can go home. (laughs) And, you know, therein lies a story where he would never have said that to a man. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So but I was like, you know, fuck you, pay me, and then I'm out of here, and that's fine. Um, so yeah, there's when you're a tour manager, you, there, you know, when, once you get to more elevated levels of tour managing, you mm-hmm. are essentially the band's concierge, and even that is extremely stressful. I'm extremely stressful. But when you're working with a smaller act that's doing clubs and theaters, you are the laundrette, you're the accountant. You're the travel agent, you're the psychiatrist, you're the hoe wrangler, <laughs> you know, you do well, you it know, all. Just from, just from what I've seen backstage and, and getting to do interviews and, and meet bands, I've, I've gotten backstage a fair amount now. And it just seems that tour manager just never gets to rest. It's nonstop. Like, I don't know when that period ever comes that you can, like, go, oh, like, I'm done. I would imagine mm-hmm. it's... What, it's probably not even when you're on the tour bus going to the next destination. No, because you're working when everybody else is sleeping. So I was I was tour managing a band that had a number one song in the world, and I literally was receiving so many phone calls and emails simultaneously that my BlackBerry crashed. It's like this thing just spontaneously combusted. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those jobs that I think a lot of people glamorize in their head but it doesn't sound like a like, – like, it's a lot of hard work. I shouldn't say it doesn't sound like – and I'm sure that there's the payoff for that. Like, on the flip side, you mentioned getting to travel around the world and get maybe get to see things that you would have never gotten to see. Now, you mentioned to me before you were at CBGB on one of the final days it was open. Uh, yeah, I think it was actually the final performance. I and you were on stage. And I was on stage. You got to be on Donna Cho, the disco ho. <laughs> and actually, when it went up on YouTube, one of the comments said, Dawn, I thought you were a feminist. And I was like, who gave you that information? <laughs> I mean, but how many people can say that? And, and I'm sure there's, you know, for all the hard stuff, I'm sure there's a lot of amazing things. And I hope you don't mind me bringing this one up. But you mentioned getting to eat chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven at Prince's house. Yes, and it was when I had... And how many people can say that? Exactly. Well, I had just moved to Los Angeles, um, and I had... uh, Sorry, I'm starting a bit, but the story overwhelms me every time I tell it. I had just moved to Los Angeles, and only, you know, only a year prior to that, I was still bartending in Philly to make ends meet and um wow I was invited from my client my dear client to uh, a Grammy party at Prince's house and um 
we arrived at maybe 11 p.m. and were greeted at the door um, with, you know, trays of champagne and Prince gave me a hug and welcome to my home. And then it was kind of a slow-moving party at first. And, you know, I am like fresh off the boat in Los Angeles and I'm looking around and there, you know, there's Matthew McConaughey playing pool with Drew Barrymore. And I'm just like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And then we're playing Scrabble and people are having cocktails and this is all very glamorous and exciting. And then the night starts to kind of drag on and on. I've now played like six games of Scrabble and I'm looking, okay, all of these famous people are very, very beautiful, but now, you know, now it's four in the morning and I'm ready to go home. And um, and my my friend says to me, just wait, just don't leave yet. And they started to set up instruments in the living room of Prince's house. This is four okay. o'clock in the morning, and a jam session starts to take place. And it's Stevie Wonder, Prince, Maceo Parker, Alicia Keys. Uh, Jamie Foxx, because I think it was right around the time that Ray was maybe coming out, okay. and and Prince, and they start this jam session in his living room, and I immediately started to feel like I was going to burst into tears. So I had to get up and walk outside and compose myself because it was, I mean, there there aren't really words to describe what what I got to be a part of that night. Yeah, you, you know, growing up, knowing what music meant to you and me, like, as part of our lives, like, that's kind of stuff that you think about, like, maybe not directly that scenario, but you, you dream about, you think about, and it, it means a lot to you, and actually get to, like, did you kind of feel like an outsider? To, like, oh, even I though you deserve to be that. there, like, you're like, why am I here? Like, I can't believe I'm getting to witness this. Well, my entire life story came, you know, occurred to me at that moment. I stood outside on his patio, and I, and I literally was like, how did I go from being, you know, a, abandoned in Korea when I was a baby, adopted, brought to Bristol, Pennsylvania, of all places, <laughs> raised in kind of like a blue-collar turnpike truck stop town, to then yeah. ending, yeah. Up, ending up at a jam session with Prince and Stevie Wonder. And, and that kind of like trajectory of my life, I just was, I felt so humbled. I felt so out of place. Like, what am I doing here? What did I do to deserve this? Um, but you do deserve it. You do deserve it. It's, just think of all the, the loads of laundry <laughs> and, <laughs> and drink orders. And, you know, it's, it's part of paying your dues. You know, and that's, that's part of it. That's part Absolutely. of it. And that's the hard work that I think that people gloss over. They just think of the end result and they don't realize all the years of trying to make it before yeah. you actually make it. Yeah, so, but, yeah. Not, to, yeah. not to digress, but I just saw Prince's sister came out and said that Prince's favorite color was not purple, it's orange. <laughs> I, didn't <see> <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> She said, "Oh, everyone, everyone, you know, thinks his favorite color is purple, but it's really orange." And I'm like, "Come on, come on!" I did not see that, but I will say that over the years, I did have the uh, pleasure of his acquaintance, and I don't recall him ever watching wearing orange. Although I do definitely recall being in his company and him forcing us to watch Rugrats, which is very orange. 
<laughs> That's so, true. Maybe he just like keeping it a secret. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm picturing him somewhere in a video somewhere with like an orange jumpsuit. It, it wasn't little There's, tangerine beret. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. No. No, I think of all the purple the man has worn. I mean, purple rain. Come on. It was an orange rain. It, exactly. It was exactly. <laughs> now, <laughs> all right. now, you mentioned all the great things um, you got to see on the road. Is it doing that, is it impossible to have a family on the road? Like, is it? I, I'm, I guess in the traditional sense of having a family. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of men on the road that uh, that have families. You know, the the session player musicians that are out on tour, backing up uh, backing up musicians or, or backing up artists or have families. Almost all of the backline tech, you know, aka roadies, but. Um, Tour, male tour managers, production managers, those people, the large majority of those people that I know have kids at this point. Um, wow. How, how often do they see their kids is another question. You know, um, women, though, it's, I mean, it's nearly physically impossible to be pregnant on tour as a woman, <laughs> mainly just because you have to be home for your doctor's appointments. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, it can be done. I know women that have, I know a couple of women that have been on tour, maybe like in the early stage and midway points of their pregnancy. But once you have your baby, it's, nobody's going to take you on a tour with your baby. So yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I look at bands like the Dolly Rots who take their children on tour. You know, yeah. they, you know, at a young age, they sit in the back with with an all pair wearing headphones, you know, but they take their family with them. And it's like, I think that's kind of amazing actually. Like it's that, that they're doing that. And I, I would imagine that for women, it poses a whole different series of not problems, but obstacles in, in doing that. So, but given that congratulations, cause you recently just had a baby. Thank you. Thank so you. Well, actually, the coolest you know, middle name ever. What's the coolest? I got a lightning, lightning. Baby lightning. lightning. Now, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but my youngest son, Cole, when we were naming him, we had the first name Cole picked out. And for a two-week period, I had my then-wife convinced that his middle name was going to be Badass. His name was going to be Cole Badass Chismar. Because what kid wouldn't want to say, hey, my name is Cole Badass Chismar. So two weeks go by, and she goes, no, that's not it. You know, and I was disappointed. So I just recently shared that with Cole like about a month ago, and he goes, you're kidding me, right? He goes, that would be incredible. His middle name is now Sebastian. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you know, ask your mom. That's what I wanted to be. So he asked her, and he's like, oh, your dad was just, he, yeah, he did say that, but he was just kidding. And I was like, oh, no, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> like, I want your middle name to be badass. He goes, as soon as I'm old enough, I'm changing my middle name to badass. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope he goes through with it. Because that would be that would be awesome. I'd be so honored. Then he could be Uncle <laughs> Badass to Cousin Lightning. <laughs> Lightning is an awesome middle name. It really is. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> but going going back, you know, to your point, if you're the artist, it's really a different story. Artists bring their families on tour yeah. all the time. If you're 
behind the scenes, yeah. unfortunately, that is, luxury is really not available to you. Yeah, so. like if you're tour managing, you never really get to rest. So, no. like when you're on the road, I would imagine you're working nonstop. So that's got to be very difficult because you're you're leaving your family behind and really having a tough time communicating. And I'm sure there's things that go on and you can't be there. And that's that's got to you know I know there's different levels to that. Like at, at another level, you can you can dictate your schedule a little bit or, or things like that. But at an early stage, it's got to be very difficult. But now that being said, even though I'm management side now, I, I still have to travel. And so, you know, you, you, your family just adapts to your lifestyle. Dylan was, uh, he was eight weeks old, and I took him to New York City with me so that I could attend the Planned Parenthood 100th anniversary gala. It's like, this kid's coming. So I'm not, you know, I'm not missing this. I'm not missing this. Yeah. He's coming, you know. So. But he'll have fantastic adventures on the road with, with you and your husband as well. We're we're kind of trying to play along that like I'm an um, I'm an uh, an accountant and his father's a dentist, <laughs> and we're gonna like try to convince this kid that he's normal. But I already think that's definitely out of the question because first of all, we already took him to the Tonight Show, and second of all, his father has band tattoos all over him. He's got Dinosaur Junior <laughs> Cal tattoo. He's got. David Crosby lyrics on the other side of his chest. He's got taking care of business, and he's got a gold tooth. So the kid is not going to believe that his father's a dentist. <laughs> he might with the gold tooth. He might. He you might. never know. Yeah, with the gold tooth. But you know what? That's awesome. You know, I look at that and I'm like, that is such an awesome thing to have. You would hope that growing up in that. Come on, if it, wouldn't it be kind of cool? Like, thinking back, if that was your dad, like, man, my dad had <laughs> my dad had Dinosaur Jr. tattoos and a gold tooth. That would be fucking awesome. My dad was in a mediocre. That was not my dad. Not even close. <laughs> yeah, my dad was in a semi-famous Britpop band in the 90s. <laughs> uh, yeah, come on. That's, that's fucking awesome. Or, yeah, you know, I'd be mean, like, oh, my dad was in this lame band <laughs> we, in the you know, 90s. Oh. Every night when we put him to sleep, um, my husband plays the guitar for him, and he just turned six months old, and he no longer is happy with just sitting and watching the guitar being played for him. He now wants to be sat up, and he's touching the strings as, as oh, by that is awesome. playing the guitar for him, and he's very engaged in what's going on. So the kid is definitely not going to be a normal as much as we want him to be a normal it's not in his card. But you know what? To you and I, that's normal. Yeah. Don't you think that's, that's normal? I mean, that's what – we were definitely not the normal kids in high school. At least I wouldn't classify myself as the normal kid in high school. Oh, my God. I was a total you know, freak. No, but our group of friends were very artistic and yeah. uh, music-loving, art-loving, literature-loving. Um, you know, and, you know, not to – not to digress too much, because this is where I wanted to go next, but, I mean, we've known each other since high school. I'm a, I'm a few years older, so we weren't in high, we, we missed being in high school together by one year. My um, friendship with you was a secret. You know that for a while? <laughs> because I'm I older. Convince, I had to convince my father that you were gay in order to be allowed to <laughs> hang out with you. Oh, my God. Did he... 
he was convinced, wasn't he? <laughs> no, he wasn't. But that's the story I told. <laughs> <laughs> he knew I was uh, it, through my teeth. Uh, but, you know, we, we have, I mean, we go back a long way. And we grew up, as you mentioned, in, in Levittown, Pennsylvania, which is a very blue-collar, um, working-class town. Like, it, it, it really is. And we were the artistic kids. We were, you know, like the punkers and the, the new wave kids. And it was, we were a very small portion of our large high school, you know, because mm. I'd say the bulk of our high school was wearing jean jackets with Led Zeppelin patches. Mm-hmm. on them uh you know so we were the minority but you know music was a, a very important part of our our teenage years and, and childhood and a very important part to us speaking of music was the venue city gardens which uh was in trent new jersey and janet and i mm-hmm. touched on this in the last podcast that it was kind of like that place where even though we were the minority in high school there was that minority in all the other local high schools, and that was where everyone met. And it was a place where we were the majority. Um, and it was a place where kind of anything went. Like it was, you know, there were there were skinheads, there were punkers, there were new waivers, uh, you know, and there were issues. And it was in like the worst part of, of Trenton, New Jersey, you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a petri dish for the artistic and the weird. Um, do you think you'd be where you were at if, had it not been for City Gardens? Was that an inspiration for you to to oh. do that? Or at least did it play some part? Absolutely. I think, you know, growing up the way that we did, um, especially for artistic-leaning kids, music was our saving grace. I mean, I know it was for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, and... Um, and I think, you know, not to dismiss the kids who are, who are listening to Motley Crue or Slayer, they're fans, you know, they have just as hardcore fans. Music and I think meant a lot to them, yeah, too. Music meant so much to them as well. I think music was our form of escape. And I think that's, that's why soul, that's why music is as powerful, you know, is, is such a powerful driving force. It's because it is, it is a form of escape for so many people. You get to leave your surroundings. You get to um, be somebody that you're not for, you know, three minutes and 30 seconds or, you know, two you get hours to find that someone, Or you get to feel someone actually felt the same way that you did or is going through the same things that you did, um, you know, where you can feel like, yeah. wow, this happened to someone else too. It's not just me. And it's because a lot of times, especially as a teenager, you can feel isolated. And the city gardens was the one place you didn't feel isolated, <laughs> you know. It's, right. Um, you know, and Randy uh, now, who booked the shows, who is legendary, who's still in Bordentown, New Jersey, with a record shop. Randy now's man cave. He's still booking concerts today. I've seen Robin Hitchcock uh, through him and the Dickies and like a lot of great artists like that. So he's still doing it today. He hasn't. He hasn't stopped, but. You know, City Gardens was like a hole in the wall that just, you know, you were, you. I think you mentioned to me your father would go and actually sit in the parking lot. Like, he would drop you off yeah. in the parking lot until the concert was over. And that was not a good, I mean, that parking lot was like a war zone. That was, yeah, he would drive us <laughs> That there. was not the safest place. Well, I think that's when he realized that there was nothing he was going to do to contain me. So if he was 
able to wait in the parking lot and pick me up. At least he knew that I was coming home alive. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know I... I I think back to that now, and I think I can't wait to do that for my kid, even you know, because it, 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 he, he understood how much music meant to me. You know, and, and that was kind of where I'm going with it, because it, it meant a lot to a lot of people. And we had mentioned, like, John Stewart was a bartender there, and James Murphy from LCD yeah. Sound System was a bouncer. And I, I think you had mentioned that then Kenny from Incubus, who grew up in New Jersey would would go to City Gardens. Like that place meant a lot to a lot of people, and it it hosted yeah. incredible concerts. Nirvana, Green Day, Ramones, Nine Inch Nails, Evo, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. I, I mean, it was the list goes on. Do, do you think a scene like that exists today? Um, I you know I don't know. I mentor a seventeen year old teenage girl. She goes to a lot of punk shows in L.A. They're DIY punk shows though, and they're. Okay. Uh, they're like high school kid bands. And so I think if that scene existed in L.A., I would know about it because she would be tapped into it. But maybe those bands that she's going to see now are going to be the next, you know, Black Flag or the next, you know, Front 242 or 808 State or whatever, what have you that are the bands that we saw play at City Gardens. Oh, because, some, yeah, sometimes – that that break doesn't happen for later. Like when we mentioned Nirvana and Green Day, that was well before major label uh, records. Same with Nine Inch Nails. That was before Pretty Hate Machine even came out that he was playing City yeah. Garden. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, we got to see bands that at the time we had no idea who they were a lot of the times coming through there. And, you know, it just was such a scene. Like people cried when that place closed. And it was <laughs> – I just – I just don't know if that scene exists today, or if it does, I would love to know where. I know. I thought um, you know, about... there's been books written about it, movies mm-hmm. done about it. It's, it's. Um, I don't know. I just don't know if it's there. I didn't know if, if yeah. you had seen anything like that on the road. Well, no, because the 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 money that it takes now to produce those shows, it just doesn't. Um, there's just not that. You just can't do something like City Gardens anymore. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, hmm, I don't know how the, it would be possible to do something as organic as City Gardens because it was a total shithole. The sound was bad. The place stunk. It was in, you know, <laughs> it was in a horrible yep. neighborhood. Um, and why was this club in this shitty-ass part of Trenton, New Jersey, able to draw these amazing bands? Obviously, you know, Randy had impeccable taste and just enough money to make it work. He would pair such odd bands together, too, for a card, like Venom and Black Flag and and things like that, like the the Mm -hmm. pair-ups were things. I think think it was mainly... Like, looking back, location, like, it was a place for bands to play in between New York and Philadelphia and D.C., and I think mm-hmm. a lot of these bands that lived out of a van on the road, it just and, – and Randy was good enough to make sure that the bands got their money, you know, and they got a decent amount. So they knew they would get taken care of, they'd get paid, and it would give yeah. them an extra place to play, you know. But that so, was before, you know, was, you know that was before uh, Live Nation and AEG are the – 
mega, mega machines that they are now. So a promoter like Randy could entice these very talented but unheard of bands to play for him. Now there are so many people, you know, with their finger on the pulse that are getting those bands to play for the venues that are already owned by the big corporate enterprise. And yep. you know. there, there's still some people, and I'm going to mention someone that I know you know, but I have so much respect for R5 Productions and Sean Agnew. I, I think he's like the next level, Randy. And I, I think what I admire most when he opened Union Transfer in Philadelphia, his comment on it was, I believe that the average college student deserves to see their favorite band and have a beer for less than $20. And yeah. You know, that's still, that, that's still the case today, and the Union Transfer is an incredible uh, venue, great sound system. It's an old spaghetti warehouse. It's just got a great mm-hmm. vibe. He gets bands that I can't believe play that small of a venue. <laughs> you, you know, like he had Neutral Milk Hotel play there. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't believe some of the people he gets, and I think that's a testament to how you treat the bands that come through. And it's, uh, you know, I'm thankful that he's in Philadelphia. I love I love Sean so much, and I see him frequently because he is in Los Angeles quite a bit. And what he did for what he does for the city of Philadelphia is it, it's you know it's first class for sure. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know how much of that exists. And you know, and even for Sean, you know, Union Transfer is like Dom Perignon compared to. City Gardens, that was like cold duck. <laughs> it, so, re- it really was. You're going to get uh, those bands, it. you know. We loved it. I would never, ever, ever wish for anything different than that experience as a teenager. Uh, you know, it, it meant so much to so many people. I can't imagine having been a teenager without city gardens that's I, i'm that thankful for it and it's i have such great memories and have connected with so many people over the years just based on that venue even if i didn't know them then and i know them now and we went there together it's kind of like we're brothers and sisters um you know i'm just thankful for that and i hope for music's sake and for teenagers sake and kids sake that that still exists somewhere you know, yeah, you know i'm thankful that 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 my kids, Darian, who's 17 years old, has been to over 20 concerts. I love that. But it's mm-hmm. been all over the place. It's not really the same scene. He's going with dad. It's not, I'm going with friends, and we're meeting up with other friends, and we're going to watch cool band. And we're not going to have phones, and we're not going to be, you know, whatever, like sharing it on social media, which is like the base thing. But the other thing was just the feeling of being completely free. It's like your parents unless your dad was sitting in the car in the parking lot, your parents didn't know where you were. They didn't know if they might have known you were a city gardener, but they didn't know if you were safe. They didn't, and there was just like a kind of freedom in, in feeling a little bit of fear. And, and a feeling oh, there was definitely a feeling of fear. But also a feeling I agree. Like I'm independent. I can handle myself in this situation. I'm only 16 years old, and I'm in the ghetto. But... You know what? And I a lot of times they were dangerous situations. Like they had what they called the wall of death where guys would link their arms together in the back of the venue and steamroller over everyone. And you know oh, what? Oh, I got in the head at a Gorilla Biscuit show <laughs> at City Gardens. 
<laughs> and I think at the time I weighed like 95 pounds. <laughs> you know. And you survived it. And I survived it. But the you other, survived. the other, you know, to your point of like, does this still exist? It doesn't exist because I can't name very many all ages venues that put a wristband on you and let other people drink at the bar simultaneously. I agree. I agree. That doesn't I, that doesn't yeah. happen too many places. It it really doesn't. It's it's a shame. It's a uh, although the industry has changed. Like you say, how we consume music, and I, I love seeing vinyl coming back now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've actually had my oldest at one time. I made them sit in a room. We turned the lights out, and I put on Abbey Road on vinyl. And I'm like, you're just gonna lay here. You're just gonna listen to it, and you're gonna experience it. Like, put your phone away. You know, we're turning the TV off, and we're just going to experience. This is how you used to listen. You you bought an album, and you may not mm-hmm. be able to afford another album for another three months. And this was it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to hear it on the radio. You're going to listen to it from start to finish, multiple times. Yeah. You know, and I think he gained a whole different appreciation for that after that. And it's it's different. It's different today. I realize that, but some things, you know, they'll have a different experience. Who's to say ours is better or theirs is better? It's just kind of well, they, sad to me yeah. that yeah. elements that I love don't really exist today. No, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, the laws are so different now. You can't have – I mean, I used to go to um, All Asia's Night at, uh, at Woody's downtown, and it was my, mm-hmm. my initial experience of hanging out in gay clubs. They started when I was 15, and it was All Asia's <laughs> Night in one room, and in the other room, the bar was open. Can you even imagine something yeah. like that now? Putting underage no. boys in a room with adult gay men? <laughs> Where, by the way, I used to run into some of our high school teachers. Speaking of high school teachers, I just want to tell you, believe <laughs> this, it or not, this is a good I, know were, <laughs> I know you were concerned with how much time we'd fill. Believe it or not, we've already been doing this for an hour. So we got... There's there's a lot of stuff I want to cover, so I'm going to have to keep moving okay. on. Um, okay. All right. So we mentioned growing up in a blue-collar town. Um, uh-huh. It, like the northeast part of Philadelphia, like the northeast suburbs, and kind of we're in Bucks County, and the way it kind of worked was the closer to Philadelphia your school was, it was kind of like not lower well, – I guess lower class. Like the further away you got from Philadelphia, the more affluent the high schools became. Well, so it was we were, literally upper bucks and lower bucks. The metaphor couldn't be any more literal. Upper bucks was where the money yeah. was. Lower bucks had yeah. none. <laughs> it had none. So now that our high school was not known for sports. I, I played soccer and baseball. I think soccer, with the exception of one year, like we would win two games a year. The, the three years I was in high school there, the football team won a combined six games in three years. Like – for as large of a school, it didn't have good athletic programs. There was really no one famous that had gone to our school um, at that point that you can go back and say, oh, this person went on. But what we were known for was our uh, theater program and for mm-hmm. debate and forensics. They were mm-hmm. the strong points. And it was – people were passionate. It wasn't just the – the art kids that went out for theater, football players went out for the theater. It was it was prestigious to be a part of the program. And mm-hmm. uh, Lou Volpe, who, uh, I mean, my sisters had him as a teacher in the 70s. I had him in the late 80s. He just retired recently. 
I mean, uh, Truman was the first school to, to do a high school production at Les Mis and Rent and, uh, you know, the, even the, uh, competitive drama won so many awards and, and they're making a TV show out of it, uh, mm-hmm. which is going to be called Rise. I can't remember which network it's on. It's NBC. Or NBC. It's NBC. NBC. Uh, starring Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother and Rosie Perez. Mm-hmm. It just seems surreal that that's our high school. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was not in the drama program. You, you were, correct? Yes. Having gone through it, I'm sure it, you know, it's not all glamour. I, like like everything else we're talking about, it, it wasn't all glamorous. It was very competitive. It was very competitive. It was yeah, teenagers tapping into an emotional well that I think adults would have a difficult time handling. Yeah, I, I think so. I think a lot of adults just being in the area, I mean, these were a lot of steelworker families, things like that. I think a lot of families mm-hmm. had problems with their kids being part of the drama program. I think the musical is one thing, and I think, yes. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what this series is focusing on. It is. I don't. It's focusing on the the musical, yeah. On more of the musical I part. I think the producers... Um, are well. The producers of Friday Night Lights. So, but also the producer it. from Hamilton, and okay. I think something to do with Glee is a part of it. I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah. But um, that's one side of what went on through the drama program, which was the musical was great. It was super fun. You know, there was a huge. Uh, chorus, and so they tried to include as many kids as possible, and that brought theater into a town where most kids could have reasonably gone through their entire high school careers and never been exposed to the theater. I I agree. I agree. And Lou, like, again, I had Lou as a teacher for Humanities, which was our school's version of the gifted program, and mm-hmm. for which was English, and, um, you know, I had a lot of fun. In, in that mm-hmm. class, it was, I can't believe the stuff, when I tell my kids stories about what went on in class, it was kind of surreal. You know, it's, um, one of my favorite stories was on my final that year, he gave me an F. Now I goofed around a lot. I wasn't the best student. I goofed around a lot. But I got an F and it was something I took very serious. And he gave one of my classmates a B plus for just writing the lyrics to Bitch and Camaro by the <laughs> Dead Milkman for his final. And I stayed after class and argued with him for an hour. And he he was convinced that my work was shit. But Bitch and Camaro was, you know, how do you argue <laughs> Bitch and Camaro? But play uh, Bitch and Camaro is a B plus. Yeah. Yeah, it's a B plus in, in a gifted program. So, <laughs> you know, that was the fourth market period. The, the, um, at the end of the school year, your report card would get mailed home. So I was checking the mailbox every day so that I could get the report card before my parents and changed the F to a B. And I got it, and I got an A on the final, and he called my house and just started laughing. It was like, ha-ha, gotcha. <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, that was 11th grade. You know, and there were other stories like that. Like he, he uh, I would leave early, like our class was the class before lunch, and I would leave early to get to lunch early 
and he's like, I'm not letting you do this anymore. I'm like, yes, you are, because you're a pussy. You can't stop me. So I got called to the office after lunch, and I was told I was to spend it, and I was given a letter to take home to my parents, which obviously I opened before I got home, and it was like, ha-ha, gotcha. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was like that kind of stuff. But then I had him for theater class a senior year, and three days into it, he's like, I need to talk to you outside. And he's like, we did this last year. I'm not doing it this year. This class means a lot to me. Change classes. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was, you know, As but that's what meant a lot to him. Yeah, but, you know, I saw a different side of him at that point. And I'm sure there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's tough being a teenager and living up to those expectations sometimes and, and sometimes he's drawing them out of you. So it's, it's, uh, it should be interesting to see how the TV show portrays it. <laughs> well, I think rise will be very similar to my roadies. And I think that the best stories are the ones that no one will get to see. Uh, like, like the kids drinking alcohol up in the rafters or in the, <laughs> the storage, the storage basement. Like those are the things I think of. Well, I think the most compelling stories are the ones where you really tap into people's personal uh, personal trauma, personal triumph, um, the triumph that comes from the trauma, the, the soul-searching questions of identity. Um, and I don't know if those stories will be told. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's based on a true story, but I have a feeling that similar to Rhodey's when I sit down and watch it, I'm going to be saying, this is nothing like how it was. <laughs> I hope they tell those stories. And you know what? There's 30 years of that program to draw stories from. And it's, you know, I look at my stories that mean a lot to me, but that was just such a small period in his teaching career. There's a million other stories mm-hmm. like that. And, and you hope some of them get told. And there's some that are funny and there's some that are truly compelling. And it's, you know, it, that program meant a lot to a lot of people. And I just, I just hope they yeah. do it justice. I hope they do it justice, and I do think that we finally got to give the middle finger to Pensbury High School. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they get John Uh, Mayer to play the prom. Big deal. We get a TV show. (laughs) Yeah, we got our own TV show, although they did have very famous DJ at their prom this year. They did. They cost me a little bit of sleep putting that one together. (laughs) But I yeah, I, but it happened. It happened. All it right, did all eventually right, happen. Mm-hmm. I want to, to play a game. I'm going to introduce us to the podcast and to mm-hmm. the blog, and this is a game that you um, introduced me to mm-hmm. called you Strongest Link, Weakest Link. Okay. All right. And yeah. you played it on the road, and you were introduced to this game by Tom Morello. Yes, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. I tour managed his solo act. Uh, I did in the past anyway, and he taught us this game. We would play it on long van rides. So, um, and, and you've given me examples, and you and, I've, you and I have had conversations and discussions mm-hmm. about this. I, I can't, like, you know, I picture Tom Morello, a guitar god, and to hear his feedback on, like, some of these classic rock guitar gods is surreal. But I'm going to try to hit you with some ones that we've never discussed, if you have anyone to hit me with. But the first one I want to give you is strongest link, link, weakest link, new order. Okay, well, I'm just going to go out there, go right out there and say <laughs> I am not really yeah, a right. new order fan. 
All right. And I know. Which, God, which should make it interesting. Lightning bolts are going to come down from the ceiling now and strike me dead. <laughs> but I wasn't really a New Order fan ever, and I don't know why that – so uh, that might be a tough for me because – you may not be a fan, but you at least have to appreciate it. Can we pass and go to the next one? We can pass. All right. I will give you another <laughs> Sorry. one. And I know you're a Sorry. fan. No, I know you're a fan of this band. So. Okay. Radiohead. Ah, oh, God. That's a tough one. Now, and especially mm-hmm. it's tough. Consider you told me before we started doing this that mm-hmm. a lot of times you find the vocalist being the weak link. Not in this case. Yeah, I don't think you can. Definitely not in this case, but I would say that it would be challenging for me to pick the strongest link because there's a lot of factors that make Radiohead Radiohead. The weak link, the weak link, I could be like, okay, that's the weakest link in Radiohead. The strongest okay. link is a little bit more challenging for me because Tom is obviously the voice of the band, but Johnny is. Such an ingenue. I can't pick between Tom and Johnny. I, I'm having trouble between the two because I think, yeah, Tom is the voice and it's unmistakable, you know, what he does. But is his solo mm-hmm. material as good as Radiohead material? Like to me, it doesn't. Right. It right. doesn't weigh right. up there. But I think you take John out of Radiohead. I don't think it's Radiohead anymore. I'm not saying you could plug someone in as Tom's vocals. I don't know. That's a, it's, it's a difficult one for me. Yeah, that's a tricky one because they think, okay, I think of the things that Johnny's done as a solo artist. I mean, his his soundtrack for There Will Be Blood mm-hmm. um, is one of the best, uh, the best musical scores of the modern era. Um, it sounds so, like you're leaning towards Johnny. I don't know. Mm, mm, mm. But Tom's voice is undeniably one of the most original, unique-sounding voices in, in rock music of, of our lifetime. And but you can only pick one. That's the beauty of this game. Yeah. I'm going to go with Tom <laughs> because he's, he's let me swim in his pool. <laughs> <laughs> And I would really right. hopefully like to be invited back one day. <laughs> at, at, who would you say weak link? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as Radiohead's career has progressed, mm-hmm. they've become more and more a digital drum band. Okay. So does that give a hint? Yeah. I, you know what? I'm right with you. That would, that would have been my strongest link, link weakest link. Okay. I'm right there with you on that. Okay. All right. So do you have one you want to throw at me, or do you want me to give you another one? Uh, no, you give me another one. All right. The Smiths. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I purposely uh, am giving you ones where the vocalist and the uh-huh. guitarist are, are pretty important. Yeah. If something happens when you've been in the business for a little while and you've had personal encounters with people. Okay, um, all right. So go I'm going to say... some classic rock stuff? No, 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 this is good. I don't okay. mind. All right. I, I, you know, um, 
I think I think Morrissey is a complete narcissistic a-hole. So I know that, <laughs> and I've never been invited to swim in his pool, so I can say that. Um, uh, okay, strongest link in the Smith. I'm going to go with John Mar. All right. All right, I'm going to say for me, I'm going to say Morrissey based mm-hmm. on – I still think that Bona Drag and Viva Hate could be Smith's albums. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I think he was able to continue on the sound of the Smiths minus Johnny Marr. Uh, and definitely his his whiny nature definitely made the Smiths stand out. Um, and Johnny Marr's been in some great bands since then. I'm not saying, you know, you, you figure he had a stint with the Pretenders and the Talking Heads and mm-hmm. the, the and Electronic, which I thought was brilliant, and um, and Modest Mouse even more recently. You know, I did mm-hmm. like Johnny's last solo album, but I just don't know if he has racked up a, the same type of career as Morrissey has. Since well, then. A, and then yeah, I'd say more. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, and I was just going to say Mike Joyce for me is the weakest link. Is the weakest link. So, yeah, I, I, I'd say that Morrissey has definitely got a charismatic voice. Um, but in recent years when I've seen him, he's now pretty much gone through every decent touring session musician and offended almost everyone. And the last time I saw him, his band and the arrangement sounded like cruise ship music. So... <laughs> Um, you know I definitely have an affinity for younger Morrissey than than older Morrissey yeah I'm not saying it's gotten better or worse but to me at some point in his solo career he lost me and I think that's probably like yeah the last time I saw Morrissey I think I'd had a few drinks and I was saying that I wish I could be throwing hot dogs at the stage so (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I like. wish you could have too, because just like to see it. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. All right. That All right. Done. I'm gonna keep moving. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna keep moving. I'm, I'm actually gonna move on to because we we got like 15 minutes left, so okay. I, I want to hit a couple more things. Um, okay. Any new t- any new bands you're excited about? Mm. Yes, but one of them would be plugging. Uh, there's a bit of nepotism because okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I really, really like Low Moon. They were one of the, the bands I was going to mention. Yeah, and, and I, I thank you and Simon for turning me on to them. But realistic, regardless of who would have turned me on to them, mm-hmm. I can't wait for the rest of the, the album. Like Loveless, I think I've mm-hmm. probably listened to that song three times today. And not the, mm-hmm. the edit version, like the seven-minute mm-hmm. version. It's unreal. I can't get enough of it. I really can't. And this and is I'm hoping, later. I'm still yeah. listening to it. And I'm really hoping that this will be maybe a, a marker for the turning of the tides of what is the music industry now because they are a priority of their label. Um, and they released a seven-minute-long single for their first song. And, and there's so, really nothing else like it. No. Out there right there's now n- to me. There's not. There's nothing else like it. Um, and I'm shocked it's, that it's only a three-piece, too. Like, that that song is the sound of a much larger band than a three-piece Well, there, there is a drummer um, okay. w- when they tour, yeah. So okay. 
um, but it's it's just a, a mature. Uh, it's, it's it's mature. Would you say rock? Would you call it rock? I don't know that I call it rock. It's it's man, it's got elements of so many things. The drums mm-hmm. almost remind me of trip hop. Mm-hmm. Their second single actually reminds me of Peter Gabriel. I, I can't like pin it down to like one mm-hmm. genre. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would you call it indie rock? It's just, it's very lush. Uh... Yeah, I don't it's know what you would call shoegazy. it. Like it has elements of shoegaze almost. It does. It's, I don't it's know. Genre, to... It's genre bending. It's multi, multi-genre. But it's, I can't wait for a full album. I, I can't. I'm so excited about this. I can't wait. Simon said the album's going to blow me away when it comes out. So I can't. I can't wait. I think Simon I've heard just nothing pulled into the things. driveway. I might have to go hide. <laughs> or he's going to come in and he's going to bust my groove. <laughs> Let me go see here. Well, we're we're almost done. We're almost done. Okay. Um, the other band, actually, Simon turned me on to also was Arlie. That oh, I don't know this band. He's 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 definitely yeah. way way deeper than I am. Hi, honey. It's, I'm re- I'm recording Fran's podcast with him right now, so I'll talk to you in a minute. No. I didn't go in the garage. I'm doing a podcast right now. See, this is glamorous music industry talk in the house. I did not leave the garage door open. Okay, you can just edit that part out, I hope. At our garage door. No, no, this is no edit. This is staying in. This is staying in. All right, real quick. We got two things left. Um, Okay. We were planning on doing a couple album reviews. We're going to do one. And as someone that you turned me on to, I'm going to let you lead. It's Amber Mark. Uh, the okay. album is 3.33 a.m. Yes. And it's interesting that you well, brought I've never up. heard of her before. Uh, you know, I feel like she's been gaining slow momentum. And I have to thank uh, KCRW for playing her now single, I guess, which is Lose My Cool. Um, yeah. And actually, yeah, you brought up Peter Gabriel, and there is definitely uh, something about her EP, 3.33 a.m., that reminds me a bit of Peter Gabriel in the kind of era when he was working with Yusun Nador. Um, oh, yeah. Like, songs like Monsoon definitely have, like, an Afrobeat feel to them. Mm-hmm. But it's not every song, but it all flows so well together. She's got this, yeah, she's got this vocal spirit that to me invokes Nina Simone and Sade and she's 23 years old and the, the, the maturation of her lyrical content and her vocal restraint is so beautiful to me. It's very mature. It, it's very mature. It's almost like someone that's been like seasoned, that's been doing this forever. But just, you know, I guess space was originally she put it on SoundCloud and it just exploded mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. And I can understand why. And it's just, I don't know. Like typically, like again, it's it's like a dreamy type soul, uh, you know, with with different beats, and it's. It's like a, a perfect driving out. Like, I'd listen to it while driving, and it was just like a perfect, like, mood setter. Um, 
you know, it's a lot of times I like I want to hear a certain type of music and I'm not quite sure like what genre it is or something. Like this is one of those types where like I was looking for that at the moment and a lot of times the 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 person or band doesn't deliver. You get one or two songs and then it kind of like goes off and I lose interest. Man, I didn't lose interest. This was way too short. Like I didn't realize it was an EP. I was hoping it was an album. <laughs> like I I listened to it like two or three times enough and since you turned me on to it I can't stop listening to it. It's so understated and so warm and it's it's I mean it's towing the line between being nostalgic and then also being completely modern and I find that that's I think it's similar to Low Moon actually that's very difficult yeah. to yeah. that's very very difficult to do with authenticity and I think that Amber Mark is nailing that I think the war on drugs are nailing that I um you know, because there's, so another many times, one, yeah, without a doubt. there's so many times where you're just like, oh, that just sounds like such and such. And I just dismiss it. I'm a terrible hater. And I'm like, ugh. You know, what, like, but this sounds exactly like the Stone Roses, except for, you know, it doesn't, it, except for it's no good. And so for me, the issue is how do you be, um, how do you pay homage to your, to, to your, uh, your heroes without them just completely ripping it off and doing it in a terrible new way where it just sounds like tinny drum machines and bad production and you know shitty writing so and i didn't get that at all it was i mean this was so well done and it's it almost felt like comfort food like it's something that like reminiscent of something you love but it was something brand new like it was mm -hmm. it wasn't just a like you said like a ripoff it was like a really fresh take on a lot of a lot of different things, not just one thing. It was, I think, again, like lo, like what I want to say about Amber Mark, I said about Low Moon. It's a lot of, they took all these great influences. They didn't really copy any of them. They just made something brand new out of it, and it just feels so comfortable and so good. I can't get enough of it. It feels like music that you want to hear on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I think I might have to buy that on vinyl. That may be my next purchase. I, you know that you, I appreciate yeah. you turning me on to this one because I don't know if I would have found this. This is not something I've heard anyone even mention. Like when you brought her up, I was like, I, I don't even know this. Like I, I'm thinking, I'm like, how out of it am I? I don't know. <laughs> I don't no, know I'm pretty out of it, especially, you know, the majority of the day now I'm listening to the Rockabye versions of songs, um, <laughs> which, by the way, Rockabye Radiohead is amazing. And I would put it oh, up to go to sleep I, if the baby wasn't home. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm looking that up as soon as we're done. <laughs> I'm listening to that tonight. Oh, my God. It's so right. good. I, but anyway. I, yeah. I'm going to wrap this up. I have one last thing for you, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Mm -hmm. Football season opener this weekend. Your prediction, uh -huh. Eagles, Redskins. Oh, Eagles. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're fans, but even objectively, I'm picking the Eagles on this one, I think. I'm, I'm going to predict a 24 to 21, 24 21 victory on this one. Oh, a high scoring game. Yeah, I think so. I think so. This one's going to be. Uh, this is going to set the tone for the whole season. I, I am so excited because the Eagles are playing on the West Coast twice this season, and I will definitely <laughs> be going. And I have debated whether or not I will be taking my now seven month old son. Oh, you're taking him. You're taking them. That's probably a much better environment on the West Coast than it is taking them to a game at the link. 
<laughs> Listen, I was at a local bar that you and I have both been at because we grew up here to watch the um, the Mayweather fight. Only uh, in Levittown, in the middle of a fight, will you start getting the Eagles chant. I don't think that <laughs> anywhere else. There's a fight going on, and you hear E-A-G-L-E-S. I'm like, what? This is really the only place that this could happen. Well, my father right, last so, year sent us a yes. giant Eagles banner to hang off of our house so that people driving by on the freeway can see it. Your dad is the best. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything that you would like to promote? Now's your chance. Um, what would I like to promote? Oh, this Saturday at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, Questlove is uh, hosting and DJing and screening uh, Coming to America. And awesome. uh, it's a film, uh, it's, a, it's a movie night in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, right by the grave of Johnny Ramone. Um, and, and now Chris Cornell. And now Chris Cornell. And they uh, they uh, they um, project the film onto the side of the mausoleum. People come at six o'clock. Questlove will be DJing. You can bring your own picnic. You can bring wine. You can bring beer. People this is Los Angeles, so people smoke them if you got them. Um, <laughs> and he will DJ all music that would go along with the film coming to America. There will probably be some secret special guests who may have been part of the film, and then we'll screen the film. Oh, that is awesome. I, now I'm jealous. I wish it's I were on the website this Saturday. And, <laughs> All yes, right. I'm gonna, Saturday. I am going to wrap this up. Uh, for more content, you can visit us on the web at www.mymusicmyconcertsmylife.com. We're on Twitter at Music Concerts Me. You can catch us on Facebook at Music, Music Concerts Me and Instagram at My Music My Concerts My Life. If there's any topics that you would love us to cover or if you have any questions, please send them to us at info at mymusicmyconcertsmylife.com. Uh, you can tweet at us any social media. We appreciate all the great feedback. Um, one of the things that I love was that people said that they didn't know a lot of the bands we reviewed on the last podcast, but they went and checked them out, which is what we're about. We just want to turn you on to good stuff, and we want you to form your own opinion. I hope we were able to do that for you today. I want to thank you again for finding us and listening. Dawn, thank you so much. Uh, thank for you being so a part much, Fran, for having me. Simon has now walked into the room five times, so I'm definitely going to suggest he's your next special guest. Jeez. All right, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. All right, thank uh, you very much, uh, everyone. Have a great evening, and we will see you when the needle drops. Thank you.